You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. The Bible reading today is from Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 to chapter 2, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they praised God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running, and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the word of the Lord. We've got a really dear friend named Rowena. We've been friends for 20 years. She's godmother to Emily. Um, And I just want that to be clear before I tell this story, Um, firstly, because Rowena might be watching. Hey, Rowena. Um, But also because, you know, I don't want it to lower people's opinions of our dear, dear friend. But anyway, Rowena was over for dinner a number of years ago and it was a special time to get together. And so we cracked out a really nice bottle of red wine, you know, get together with friends, time to celebrate. And I'm pouring the wine and I said, 
Rowena, would you like some? And she said, oh, just, just a little bit, just maybe, maybe an inch in my glass. So I poured it in. And then she stands up with that wine glass, walks into our kitchen, goes to the tap and proceeds to top up the glass right to the top with water. I mean, my face just dropped. I couldn't believe it. What had she done? This perfectly aged, balanced red wine turned into some sort of weird cordial. She'd ruined it. A couple of years ago, Abby had a birthday party. She had some friends over for a sleepover. It was kind of a uh, watch a movie, grab some pizza. So we ordered the pizza in. We're all gathered around the table and one of Abby's friends said, um, have you got any tomato sauce? Yeah. So I go and get it. And she proceeds to squeeze tomato sauce all over the top of this beautiful pizza. I know, you're thinking exactly the same as me. It's already got tomato sauce on the bottom. Why do you need to put tomato sauce on the top? She'd ruined it by adding that in. The reality is we can ruin things by adding to them. And the more perfect something is to begin with, think a beautifully aged fine red wine, the more likely you are to ruin it rather than improve it by adding something to it. Well, that's the case with the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Um, and that's why Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians. He's wanting to tell people the good news about Jesus, but he's just got wind of the fact that people are trying to add stuff in to the good news of Jesus. And he knows that if you do that, you will ruin it. So he's writing this letter to the Galatians to talk about it. The good news that Paul is writing about is about Jesus, about the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus has dealt completely with our wrongdoing, our, our sin, the stuff that lives out of step with the way that God wants us to do and doesn't love people around us properly. He's dealt with that by his death on the cross and he's opened a way for us to have relationship with the living God simply by putting our trust in Jesus. That's the message that Paul's been speaking about. But now he's dealing with people who are saying, yeah, you know, that's, that's a good message, it's fine, but it needs something added to it. There's stuff that we need to do on top of what Jesus has done to be a proper Christian. Namely, in this case, to follow certain laws in the Old Testament, to follow the Jewish law in its entirety, including the ritual laws, uh, and most specifically, circumcision. Now, says Paul, that's like putting tomato sauce on your pizza. That's like adding water to a fine red wine. It doesn't help it. It ruins the good news of Jesus. It's so perfect. It's so right that if you add anything to it, you'll wreck it. And Paul wants to protect the good news in its purity, uh, in its goodness and in its power. So in today's passage uh, from Galatians, from uh, chapter 1, verse 11 through to 2, verse 10, Paul focuses on the good news, on, on the gospel. And he makes two points. Firstly, that the gospel 
comes from God. And secondly, that there's just one gospel, which is for all people. So I'd love you to grab your Bibles or pull it up on your phone and we'll have a look at it together. So Paul's first point is that the gospel comes from God. Have a look with me at verse 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, this message that I'm preaching, this is not something that I've just made up myself, and it's not even something that I've got from other people around me. People will often say that the Bible or the message of Christianity is just a made-up human invention. You know, it's something that people have come up with to deal with their insecurities. It's a, it's a prop for weak people to feel better about life. Or perhaps more negatively still, it's something that people have made up to manipulate other people and to exercise power over other people to get their money or to have power and control or something like that. But Christians have always maintained, as Paul does here, that the gospel comes from God. It's something that God has revealed to humans. It's not something that human beings have thought up as a way to try and get to God or to understand God. And so uh, Paul says here uh, that in verse 12 that he received the good news he's preaching by revelation from Jesus himself. Now, if you think about it, Paul must have known a bit of stuff about Christianity because as he goes on to describe here, he's actually attacking and persecuting Christians because he doesn't like what they're teaching what they're saying about Jesus. He's so zealous uh, as uh, a, a, a Jewish man wanting to uphold the Jewish laws that he hates Christians who are pointing people to Jesus. So he must have known something about the Christian message. And in fact, he was on his way to the city of Damascus. He was on the road to put Christians in prison and to persecute them when he actually had a personal encounter with Jesus himself. Jesus revealed himself on that road to Paul. He said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? That story is recounted in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9. And in that moment, Paul's life was transformed. He turned from being someone who persecuted Christians to someone who wanted to tell people about Jesus. He became one of the main evangelists for Christianity and traveled throughout the known world at the time telling people about Jesus. Now, it didn't all happen in a moment, in an instant on the roadside there. I mean, in that moment, Paul realized that Jesus was real, that Jesus was actually risen and the Lord of everything. But it took him time to, to process things and to work out what does this actually mean? And so he goes on to describe a bit of a timeline of, of what happened. How did he learn this message that he was going to preach? And he says in verse 17 here that after this encounter, he didn't immediately head down to Jerusalem and try and find the first followers of Jesus, the, the apostles, the people who were first with Jesus. Um, now, that would have been a pretty sensible move. These guys have lived with Jesus. They've heard his teaching. So he could have just headed down there and worked out from them exactly what this is all about. 
But he didn't do that. Instead, he headed into Arabia and later returned to Damascus, he says. And three years later only did he go to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know all the details of what was going on here. Arabia at the time was the whole area around Damascus. But it seems like over this period that Paul studied his Bible uh, and was led by God's Holy Spirit to understand the full implications of God's good news in Jesus Christ. That through Jesus' life and teaching, through his sacrificial death on the cross, through his resurrection and defeat of death, and through his ascension to rule over the whole universe as king, that Jesus was the center of God's plans for the world, and he was the complete fulfillment of all of the promises that God had made to his people Israel. What the world needs is Jesus. God's good news is Jesus. Everyone, everywhere needs to put their trust in Jesus. And so Paul started preaching Jesus to the joy and the surprise of the churches in Judea. Have a look at what verse 23 quotes them as saying. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of him. So let's pause and think about what are the implications of this for us. You see, it's vital that we remember that the gospel comes from God and belongs to God. Um, the gospel is not some made-up human invention about what people 2,000 years ago thought about God or their moral values and philosophy for life to be put into practice. You know, when people say, what can a 2,000-year-old book teach us about life today, they're right to be sceptical, right? If this is just the musings of human beings or some human philosophy that's been put together, then sure, it's, it's likely to be outdated and irrelevant to modern life. But if it is, in fact, the God of the universe, the God who made us and who sustains us, the God who loves us with an unrelenting passion, revealing himself to humankind through word and through action, showing people how we can be in relationship with this living God, then that's something entirely different and something that we've got to listen to and pay attention to. And this gospel, this good news, unashamedly centers on the person of Jesus. It's grounded in his life, a life lived in a real place, in real time, in real history, in real relationships. It's anchored in historical events that you can check out and see whether these things actually happened. And if Jesus didn't actually live or speak these words or do the things that the Bible speaks of, then the whole gospel collapses and is ruined. So it's vital that we recognize that the gospel comes from God. And that means that we're not free to alter or change it, right? Even if there are parts that we don't really like, or when we share it with people, there are parts that 
they don't really like, it's not up to us to alter it, change it, adapt it to suit them because it's God's message. It's come from him. It's not ours. Right? Don't add water to it. Don't water it down to make the bits that are a bit hard to take easier for people to accept. Ah, oh, surely Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, you know, like that couldn't happen. It must have been some sort of, you know, spiritual realization to his first disciples or something like that. No, that ruins the gospel. And we're not free to do that because it's God's gospel, not ours. The good news doesn't have a human origin. It comes from God. It's him breaking into human history, revealing his truth through word and action. And it concerns his son, Jesus, the one who brings us into relationship with God. So the gospel comes from God. And Paul says he's got this gospel directly from Jesus himself. He didn't go and consult the other followers of Jesus in the first instance. Now, I wonder whether that worries you, because it sure worries me. Here's why I'm deeply troubled when I read these words of Paul. Right? All through history, there's been people who've announced, God has spoken to me. God's given me his message. And in most cases, those people are nut jobs. And here's Paul telling us that he's had some sort of private message from God. Like it's almost like this gospel message has been downloaded into his brain from above. So how do we know that it's true? How do we know that this isn't something that just Paul has made up? And more than that, how do we know that Paul isn't speaking one message and the other followers of Jesus, the ones who actually lived with him, heard him and followed him from the first, people like Peter, uh, John, Thomas, how do we know that they're not speaking different gospels, different messages about how we can have a relationship with God? Well, that's what Paul deals with in the second part of this passage. He says, the gospel comes from God and I've got it directly, but it's the same message that the other followers of Jesus are also speaking. That message which is grounded in the real events of history. So in verse 18, he says that he goes and sees Kephas, which is another name for Peter. And also he meets with James, who's the brother of Jesus and was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Then in chapter 2, uh, verse 1, he says 14 years later, he went again and he spoke to uh, Peter again, as well as other leaders uh, in the church, probably um, James, John and Peter. And in verse 6, he says, they added nothing to my message. In other words, when, when Paul shares with them and he said, guys, this is what I'm teaching about Jesus. This is what I'm teaching about God. It's consistent with what they also know about Jesus and their teaching. They don't feel the need to say, uh, Paul, you're missing something. We need to add this little bit in. Or you've got it wrong and we've got to reshape it. No, he's got it. He's got the gospel in its entirety and they don't need to add anything in. Now, most importantly in this context, because of what Paul's dealing with, 
they don't feel the need to add in the fact that people need to be circumcised and follow the Jewish ritual laws. That's implied by the words, they added nothing to my message, but it's also demonstrated by the people that Paul takes along with him, right? He's got two guys with him. He's got Barnabas, who was Jewish and would have been circumcised, but he's also got another guy called Titus, who was a Greek and who wasn't circumcised. So this is not just a theoretical conversation as Paul goes down to talk to these apostles. It's especially not just a theoretical conversation for poor old Titus, who may be feeling a little bit nervous about what they might insist on in taking this trip. He's got, Paul's got two people with him who have both put their trust in Jesus. One of them is circumcised, one of them is not. And the question is this, is trusting Jesus enough for salvation? Are both Barnabas and Titus real, genuine, true blue Christians? Or does Titus need something extra, a little snip, a painful snip, to make him the real deal? Verse 3, not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. No, they say, Titus, you're the real deal. You're one of us. You're a Christian. All that's required is trust in Jesus. Nothing extra needs to be added. Now, we read that and we think, guys, what was the big deal about? You know, why are they getting so flustered about this issue of circumcision? Because it's such a non-issue for us. And it sounds like they're arguing over really petty things. But Paul knows that this is a key moment, that this message about Jesus is going to stand or fall in what gets decided in this conversation. Listen to some of the things that he says throughout the passage. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. All right, here's the moment where the entire message of Jesus could be corrupted and lost. The race could be run in vain. Freedom could be lost and people become slaves. The truth of the gospel gets corrupted rather than being preserved. If faith in Jesus is not enough in and of itself, if something, anything needs to be added to this, then it basically says that what Jesus has done isn't sufficient, isn't enough, that we need to add something to it by what we do in order to be right with God. I want you to complete this sentence for me. To be a genuine, true blue Christian, you have to. How do you finish that sentence? To be a genuine, true blue Christian, you have to go to church regularly. Give money to the poor. Read your Bible regularly. Vote for a particular political party. Never drink any alcohol. Be a teetotaler. Be a vegetarian. No, the only way to complete that sentence is this. 
To be a genuine, true blue Christian, you have to trust in Jesus. Full stop. Trust his life, that he has lived the perfect life for you. Trust his death, that it is a complete sacrifice for sin that deals with every wrong thing that we've done. Trust his resurrection, that it brings new life with God forever. Anything that you add, anything at all, ruins the gospel. It's like adding water to a perfect wine. It's like smearing tomato sauce on a pizza. Now, of course, trusting Jesus means living our lives in obedience to him. Right? And trusting Jesus should make a difference to our behavior and our actions. It should impact our desire to gather with other people as God's people for church. It should impact how we use our money. It should impact our concern for people in need, our engagement with the Bible, how we think about voting, even what we eat and drink. It, in fact, it should impact every single area of our lives. Right? These are the fruit and the outworkings of trust in Jesus. But they're not the things that make you a Christian. So let me finish with another question. Are you a Christian? If you're tempted to answer something like, mm, sort of, or I'm trying my best to be one, or I'm not a very good one at the moment, then it sounds like you're inadvertently adding something to the gospel because you are thinking that it's something that you do that makes you a Christian rather than what Jesus has done for you by his life, his death, his resurrection. So let me put it a different way. Do you trust in Jesus? Have you committed yourself to him and said, yes, Jesus, I trust you. You're the one in charge. Because that's all it takes. And then get on living his way in response to his love for you. Anything else is adding to the gospel. Please don't do that. You'll ruin it. You'll end up enslaved rather than finding freedom in Jesus. And you'll end up running in vain because you'll actually be trusting in yourself rather than trusting in Jesus. So let me pray. We thank you, Jesus, that you have done it all for us, that you have broken into history to bring us good news of how we can have a relationship with the living God. Help us to trust you, not ourselves. Help us not to depend on things that we do and so add to the gospel, but trust you utterly and completely and live out that trust in action. Amen.